0: I would like for us to stand all of us men to stand we're going to give a standing ovation to all the women of our church all the amazing amazing women of our church thank you guys so much may that also serve as a reminder in case you forgot I have to give a standing ovation to my wife once a week, whether I like it or not. (laughs) So I figured I'd have you join me at least one week out of the year. Hey, last weekend I was not here. I was in Texas, and we got to hear from Pastor Dave, and I was able to watch it. We had posted it already, like on Sunday, I think, or Monday. And so I was able to watch it while I was waiting for my plane on Tuesday coming back. And um, as I always say, we're just uh, so uh, fortunate. Uh, As many of you probably know, he literally took off his mic and went straight to the hospital for uh, his second round of treatments. He's home now, resting. He'll go back in on the 20th. So I know you're praying. Just keep praying. He's doing well. Uh, He's responding well. He's strong, getting stronger. Checked in with me, as he always does on on Saturday. He's amazing that way. So continue to pray for Dave. We had a, a great second preview service in Heath, Texas, and there was a handful of people from this church that went out there, um, spent some time with Sarah and Harley Hunnell and came to church on Sunday. But, uh, so we had a preview service in April. We had one in May, which just happened last week. We have three more, June, July, and August, and then the grand opening on 9-9-18. So be praying for Heath. The Lord was so gracious. Brian's here from Heath. If you remember Brian, um, we're trying to, yes, yeah. I sent an offer letter to the leadership there to Pastor Chris and said, we'll send you a couple draft choices in cash if we can have them back. And they said, no. <laughs> anyway, it's good to be with you, brother. Um, but yeah, just an amazing time. The Lord just keeps bringing uh, people to that church that are really excited about joining the launch team. So thank you for your prayers for the church in Heath, Texas. It's a lot of fun. And you guys have so much to do to, are you're responsible for so much of the success that, that we're seeing out there because of your faithful prayers, so thank you. It's good to be with you guys. I, I miss you so much. You guys are really good looking, just amazing. I think Pastor Dave says it all the time, and now I, knows, I know what he's talking about. It is so good to be with you guys. I'm going to share with you an article that was written in uh, September of 2014, so a little over three years ago, by a lady named Denise Rowland about accounting blunders, um, so that... <laughs> The title is Paul the Accountant. Did you guys know Paul was an accountant? I don't know if that's riveting news or not, but accounting blunders, September 2014. I'll give you a couple of them. There was five that she listed. I'm just going to give you three, and I compress them a little bit. First one, Bank of America, $4 billion accounting blunder. This banking giant, she writes, had been overstating the amount of capital on its balance sheet to the tune of $4 billion. $4 billion it admitted in April of that year. The error went undetected by sev- uh, for several years by the company's own accountants as well as, as its external auditor. It linked back to a miscalculation relating to its losses from the acquisition of Merrill Lynch in 2009. The bank was forced to suspend a $4 billion uh, share buyback plan and increased the dividend payment after it realized its error. That's a big error, $4 billion. I made the same mistake in my checkbook, just so you know. (laughs) I'm like, you know, this seems like a few more billion than I had yesterday. Like, anyway. Second one, Rolls Royce. This is not big, 40 million pounds. The engine maker had to reduce its 2012 pre-tax profits by almost 40 million pounds in February after the Financial Reporting Council told it to change the way it accounts for upfront payments from partners in their risk-sharing fees on engine development projects. The third one (laughs) was the state of California. (laughs) What a shock, right? 31.65 billion, an audit earlier this year unveiled that their accounts were off by a whopping 31.65 billion or more than the GDP, uh, what is that GDP, Uh, gross domestic product, is that what it stands for? of Iceland and Jamaica combined. The errors arose from a dizzying combination of understated expenditure, <laughs> overstated tax receipts and bond debt, and a 9.1 billion reporting error on the amount of money sunk into public building construction fund. Okay, what's the takeaway from those three stories of Bank of America, Rolls-Royce, and California? Here's the takeaway. Failure to do proper accounting in in the business world may. May cost the organization tons of money, loss of jobs, loss of customers, or potentially business failure. It may even land someone in prison, as we know. However, failure to do proper accounting in the spiritual world, not may, it will cost you dearly, both presently and eternally. Amen? Proper accounting is what brings Paul joy. Philippians is always referred to as the book of joy. Well, it's because Paul does proper accounting, and proper accounting is what brings us joy. Nehemiah 8.10, we were in Nehemiah a few months ago, Nehemiah 8.10 says as much, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, when we do proper accounting, when we put the Lord in his rightful place and we put ourselves in the rightful place next to the Lord, that brings us joy when we do proper accounting and that joy is what gives us strength and too many of God's people aren't operating out of strength and it's because they haven't done proper accounting that gives us the joy that feeds our strength. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are here because we want to hear from you. We want you to have your way with us. We pray, Lord, that when we leave here tonight, that we will wrestle with doing some proper accounting in our lives, that we would understand what's profitable and what's not profitable, what is a gain and what is a loss, what is everlasting and what is fleeting and temporary. Help us, Lord, and empower us by your Holy Spirit to do proper accounting in our lives that we may, like Paul, be people of joy, and that joy will feed our strength. It's in your name we prayed. everybody said. As you know, we're in the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible, great. We use the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. If you're on your phone, look up the NASB. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. Feel free to take that home. If you need an NASB for home, just grab one out of the seat in front of you. Philippians chapter 3, we're in verses 7 through 11. Five action-packed verses for us tonight. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Paul, the accountant, says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or the flesh or self-righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, not flesh. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Hmm. Five very, very full verses. I, I hope this is meaningful to you. I'm going to show you some stuff on the screen. Four different snapshots, if you will, that I hope help calibrate our minds around all the stuff that's going on in these five verses. This is the kind of stuff that helps me. Go ahead and put up the first one. See, this is the significance of things. In the green, Paul mentions things, 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 things. You guys ever get tired of things? And the things in our lives we have to ascertain, we have to account. Are are they gain? Look at verse 7, right? Gain, counted, lost, Verse 8, count, loss, value, count, rubbish, gain, attain. It's like what's going on, right? Things are significant. They can be significantly in the way or significantly out of the way as it pertains to how we engage with Jesus Christ, our Lord. The, go ahead and put up the second slide. So that's the first one, the significance of things. But see, what Paul wants to do in the midst of all those things, in the midst of gain, in the midst of cost, in the midst of trying to ascertain what's valuable and what's not, he throws Christ all through this text. Christ, Christ, him, Christ, him, his, his, his. Paul's trying to help us understand what's important and what's not. So that second slide is Christ is greater than all things. The third one, let's go ahead and throw that one up. You know, sometimes we, we do what's called a price comparison. Well, we need to do a Christ comparison. We need to compare everything in our lives to Christ because that's what Paul does. Look at how carefully he chooses his words. See, he says, I have those things in verse 7, I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. I'm comparing. It's it's a Christ comparison. And Look at verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of. So for the sake of Christ, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, so that I may gain Christ and so that I may be found in Christ. Verse 10, so that I may know Christ in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We need to do a Christ comparison of everything in our lives and measure everything in our lives to Christ the way Paul does. And the last one is don't place Christ amongst your things. We have things. And this is what happens, right? This is all those slides together. We see things. We see gain. We see loss. We see counting We see the Christ comparison verses, and then we see Christ in the blue. And sometimes this is just what life feels like. There's lots of things. We know some things are of value. We know Christ is important, but sometimes Christ gets lost amongst our things. And so we have this thing called Christianity, and we have this thing called the job, and we have this thing called the family, and we have this thing called the church, And Paul's trying to help us sift through all the things and all the things that are gained and all the things that are lost and say, Christ, Christ, Christ. Paul's just laser focused and he's trying to get us to be the same. Here's our outline for our five verses. Rubbishness. We're going to spend most of our time in verses seven and eight. Rubbishness. He says, all those things I consider rubbish. Rubbish. And then righteousness or justification is verse 9. And then there's sanctification in verse 10. This is very theological. You have justification, sanctification, and then glorification. Getting right with Jesus through our salvation experience of being justified by our faith. And then, right, so we get right with God. We have a right standing. That's the second part of our outline. That we're justified. We're made righteous. And then we begin to live righteously. That's our sanctification. And then we are glorified with our Heavenly Father when we go to be with Him. These five verses are a wonderful blend of practical living and theological living. It's a nice blend between the practical and the theological. Let's take a look at our first part of our outline, this rubbishness. Let's read verses 7 and 8 again. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ." So when Paul says in verse seven, "Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss," he's referring to verses three through six, which Pastor Dave covered last week. Let's reread verses three through six. He says in verse three, "We are of the true circumcision, who worship the spirit in the spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh." See, Paul used to put confidence in his flesh in being Jewish. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul, more than anybody else, put confidence in his flesh. And what he's saying is it was rubbish. Verse 5, here's the confidence I can put in the flesh. Circumcised the eighth day. From the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, I was at the top of my game, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Those were the things that he mentions in verse 7 when he says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. So here's what Paul is saying. Outside of putting our faith in the person of Jesus Christ, outside of that, the exceptionally best efforts of our flesh, which is represented here by Paul, are rubbish. Outside of putting our faith in Jesus Christ, our exceptionally best efforts in our flesh, represented by Paul, he says, I far more could put confidence in the flesh, that was rubbish. Look at Isaiah 64, 6. Here's another way of putting it. Many of us know these verses. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. How many of us? All of us. And all our righteous deeds. How many of our righteous deeds? All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment or filthy rags. Our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And all of us, how many of us? All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So, in in reference to salvation, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, when it comes to our righteousness, which is being made right with God, any and all efforts from any and all people are nothing but rubbish. We know this already. Okay. So that's what he clarifies in verse 7. But he, then he goes into verse 8. He says, more than that, more than that, I count all things to be lost. Not only the things that I was and the things that I did, but now I realize that everything, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Wow, do we live this way. Not only are are our efforts rubbish for eternal living, verse 7, Paul also declares all things rubbish in our daily living as well. Hmm, I'll unpack that a little bit, bear with me. You know the book of Ecclesiastes? There's a common theme through Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Thus, Solomon writes, what did Solomon have in this world? Everything. Everything. And he says this, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. There was no gain in anything in this world. Let's discuss this word rubbish. We don't see the word rubbish much in Scripture. The Greek word is skybalon, S-K-Y-B-A-L-O-N. Almost like sky balloon with minus one L. S-K-Y-B-A-L-O-N. It means rubbish. This word in the Greek means, listen, waste. Any materials unused and rejected as worthless or unwanted. Let me be more specific. It means refuse, garbage, dung or excrement this is what paul is saying when he says i count all things rubbish especially and specifically it means solid animal waste i'm trying to say what i don't want to say publicly in as many ways as i can but i think you get the point verses seven and eight are amazing and powerful measuring verses aren't they They're amazing and powerful measuring verses or accounting verses where Paul takes account of everything in his life. And so I ask you, how often do you and I measure or take an account of our lives? How often do you and I measure and take an account of our lives? I bet you we take an account of our finances more than we take an account of our lives compared to Christ. It's just a guess. And when we do measure or take an account of our lives, who or what is the measuring tool that we're using? Is it Christ? Is it our brother in Christ? Is it our neighbor? Is it the guy at work? The gal next door? So let's put all this together now. Let's reread verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me... Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Okay. So that was his life in the past. But he says, more than that, or in addition to that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So what's the main thrust of these two verses? What is the main thrust of verses 7 and 8? Is Paul trying to devalue the things of this world by declaring them as loss or as dung or as excrement? Is that what Paul's doing? He's devaluing? Is he trying to devalue the things of this world by declaring them as rubbish? Kind of. Kind of. But not totally. The main thrust... Of these two verses, 7 and 8, is not so much the devaluation of things, but the superior value and the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, whereby everything looks like rubbish. Do you get the difference? There's such a difference. We're not trying to devalue things that are important, have some value. He's just saying, compared to Christ, they're, they're nothing. That's how important Christ is. That's why Jesus Christ in Christianity just kind of blows everybody's comfort zone up a little bit. Because people want to have other things important. And Paul's saying, oh no. All other things are rubbish compared to the surpassing value in the internal greatness of Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. Our health, valuable. Our relationships, valuable. Our career, valuable. Our finances, valuable valuable, but verse 8 says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I count them but rubbish. So it's not to devalue those things that are valuable, it's to put Christ on this amazing pedestal in our lives and to treat him as such in how we walk with him every day and live with him every day. Do we do that? Paul Paul has counted. Paul has counted. Three times it says Paul counted. Have we ever counted? Look at these verses. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted. Verse 8, more than that, I count in the end and count them but rubbish. Paul takes an account of his life. And so he lets us know three times that he has counted Can we, like Paul, say that we have counted? Can we, like Paul, say that we have counted? Do we live lives that reflect the surpassing greatness and superior value of Jesus Christ? Is this how we live? Do we live lives that reflect the surpassing greatness and superior value of Jesus Christ? He says... Whatever things, in verse 7, he says those things, in verse 7, and he says all things, in verse 8. Whatever things, those things, all things. Perhaps, like Paul, we've come to a place of salvation, because see, the whatever things and those things refers to his finding his righteousness in Christ. So he says, whatever things that I was trying to find my righteousness in, my self-righteousness in, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost. And we get to that point where we realize my self-righteousness is is meaningless and so I need to find my righteousness in Christ. And so we've done well. And we can say the same as Paul. Whatever things, those things, I have counted as lost and I'm now righteous in Christ. But we're still wrestling with all things. We still have some things that we hold of high value which devalues Christ. See, Paul doesn't just say whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost. He says more than that, I realize all things are but rubbish. And that's part of our sanctification process. That's part of our maturity process where God is saying, please don't value things over my son. There's nothing Nothing as valuable, certainly not more valuable. All things, Paul says, are rubbish compared to Christ. So I ask you, what things are getting equal or even higher billing than Jesus in your life? What things are getting equal billing or higher billing than Jesus in your lives? Those who witness your life, what would they declare as the most valuable aspect or aspects of your life? Those who have the best glimpse of your life, what would they declare as the most valuable thing in your life? Would they say, Jesus Christ, beyond a shadow of a doubt? So I'll stretch this here a little bit. Can we also look at this passage this way? (laughs) What things get in our way when he says all things rubbish so that I may gain Christ? All things rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's what he says, right? So what things get in our way of gaining Christ? What things get in our way of gaining Christ? When that takes place, are we declaring then that Christ is rubbish? If Paul says all things are rubbish compared to knowing Christ, then if we have things that get in the way of us gaining Christ, then we are saying that Christ is rubbish. Wow, I don't like that. In verses 7 and 8, Paul lives his life practically because of what he knows theologically. Paul lives his life practically because of what he knows theologically. And the theology is found in verses 9, 10, and 11. That's why these fit so well together. His practical living is based off of his theological understanding, verses 9, 10, and 11. One commentary says this, and I love it. Theology and life go together. Theology and life go together. And the antidote to poor living is proper theology. Bam! That's the antidote to poor living is proper theology. We must have proper theology so that we live well. That's what Paul is showing us here in verses 7 through 11. Our second stanza, our second part of our outline is this righteousness or justification. And so now we're getting to justification, verse 9, sanctification, verse 10, and glorification, verse 11. Let's read verse 9. So the end of verse 8, he says, "So "...that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in Him." So my righteousness is found in him, not a righteousness of my own derived from the law or the flesh, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Our righteousness is found in him. And when Paul realizes that his righteousness is found in him, then he knows how to value Christ appropriately because his theology drives his behavior. Our righteousness, verse 9 says, is found in Him. Romans 3.10 says this. I don't know if you know this. (laughs) There's none righteous, not even one. Not one. He doesn't say there's a few righteous people. He says there's none righteous, not even one, Paul writes. So we have two choices in life. Self-righteousness, which is what Paul was pursuing, that's done in the flesh. Self-righteousness is done in the flesh. And so it's a measuring of self through the self. Boy, that sounds gnarly, doesn't it? Can you imagine? Hey, every person outside of Christ that has a self-righteousness thinks they're righteous. And that measuring stick is just different for everybody. That's one choice. Self righteousness done in the flesh, a measuring of self through the self. Or God's righteousness, which is in faith, not flesh, which is a measuring of self through the Savior. Not a measuring of self through the self, a measuring of self through the Savior. The perfect blood of Jesus Christ who died for you and me. That's, those are two choices. A self righteousness, although Scripture declares there's none righteous, no, not one or God's righteousness, which is through Jesus Christ. See, righteousness in this passage, I don't know if you know this, it's not a moral term. It's a legal term. Righteousness in this passage is a legal term, not a moral one. It means that a judge would pronounce somebody righteous or not. We are declared righteous by the king of kings and lord of lords by god who sits as judge he declares us righteous as a judgment and only he can pronounce that judgment and it's done through jesus christ go to romans chapter 3 turn a little bit to your left and go to romans chapter 3 we're going to look at verses 19 through 26 matthew mark luke john acts and then romans Romans 3, starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, flesh, it speaks to those who are under the law, the self-righteousness, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law... Zero flesh will be justified, will be declared righteous in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, our unrighteousness. Verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, Jesus Christ, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness, which even means Uh, which is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He displayed publicly on a cross as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over our sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just because somebody had to pay for sin and the justifier, he's the one who declares who's justified of the one who has faith in Jesus. Mm. So, Like Paul attempted, Paul attempted to be righteous. Do you know that? Paul was attempting to be righteous before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Like Paul attempted, many people, I believe, truly desired to be righteous. But like Paul, it's a self-righteousness. That's a problem. A for effort. F for execution. God will only judge us as righteous through Christ. That's it. Okay, our third part of our outline. So that's our justification. This is now our sanctification going back to Philippians verse 10. Chapter 3. Right? So we have the justification, verse 9. Now the sanctification. So Paul's like, I have my right standing in verse 9. Now I want to live well that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Paul, like many of us, perhaps all of us in this room, Paul already knew Christ as Savior. He already knew Him as Savior, But he wanted to know him more intimately as Lord. See, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Paul knew him as his Savior, but he wanted to know him intimately as Lord. This word know in verse 10 means to know by experience. And so we are declared righteous in Christ, and so we know him as Savior. But Paul says, now I want to know him as Lord. I want to submit my life to him. I want to follow him. I want to be obedient to him. And so be, th- there begins Paul's sanctification process, our sanctification process. The first thing he says in verse 10 is the power of his resurrection. It's the same power that brought Christ forth from the dead now operates in you and me. It's the power that came from on high that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 talks about when Jesus is waiting for the power from on high. We are filled with the power of a resurrected Savior. The same power resides in us. I hope we're living that way. The second thing is this, he says, the fellowship of his sufferings. What that means is we are called to be righteous in a world that doesn't embrace righteous living. And that's what Paul says, I want to be righteous like Christ was righteous. And so we are involved in the fellowship of His sufferings because He was crucified and He was perfect. We're imperfect. You think it's going to be any better for us? And then the third thing He says in verse 10 is being conformed to His death. In other words, He died for sin so that we would die to sin. He died for sin so that you and I would die to sin. Sin and so when we become conformed to His death, we begin to live a sinless life. We begin to take sin seriously, because He died for sin, so that we would die to sin. And so Paul wanted now to not just have His uh, righteousness declared as because Christ was His Savior, but He wanted to start living intimately with Christ, not just as Savior, but also as Lord, also as Master, being empowered by Christ. And lastly, this thing called glorification. Let's look at verse 11. So verse 9, right? Justified. Verse 10, being sanctified. Verse 11, glorified. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Our life, we, see, this is the only life we know because we're still living it. But compared to eternity, a million years, if we live to be a million years old, compared to eternity, it's a flicker. And so this glorification is something that Paul understood and he fixed his eyes upon that. Paul lived for Christ because he died to himself. He took up his cross daily and followed him. And so the result of his death was a spiritual resurrection. That's what verse 11 talks about. Both presently, I'm declared righteous, I'm declared saved, and eternally. He was declared, or spiritually resurrected, both presently and eternally. Turn again to Romans, a little to your left, go to chapter 6. Go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. As we wind this up, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. This is the resurrection that Paul is living. He says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Amen? Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all of us. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. We've been resurrected both now and eternally. Many Christians, church, are spiritually dead. Many Christians are either spiritually dead or on the brink of being spiritually dead because they're still seeking gain outside of Christ. Oh, my spiritual life feels dead. How's that possible? It's the, only, the only way it's possible is we're trying to find life in things that Paul says are rubbish. And what are those things? Everything. We should never have a dead spiritual life unless we're seeking gain and seeking profit outside of Jesus Christ. And so I wonder which gains of yours he is wanting to address with you. When Paul took an account and he says once, the things that I once counted as gain are now rubbish to me. And so I wonder which gains, what things that you consider gain does he want to have a chat with you about? What rubbish would the Lord want to remove in your life? Good question for us, isn't it? I'm going to invite up the worship team. I'm going to pray us out of our time together. And then if you need prayer, our prayer team is available down here in the corner. So good to be with you guys. Lord bless you. God loves us so much. I pray, I pray, I pray, church, that we get rid of the rubbish in our life and give Christ the value that's due Him a little bit more today, a little bit more this week, a little bit more this month, a little bit more this year than you ever have before. Almighty God, we We recognize that many things we consider to be gained for us. And we ask for your forgiveness. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us what's getting in the way of giving you the value that is true of you and is hindering our walk with you. Forgive us of that, Lord. Set us free, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.